0: would say that in my experience, when I talk to different financial planners, when they come from business um, schools, if, this, if the courses in financial planning are, are housed in the School of Business, they tend to get less uh, exposure to different you know, social science perspectives on financial planning. So my hope is that financial planning will be seen more as a helping profession than a business profession.
1: This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program. The entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Uh, This episode, we're going to be talking to a financial therapist. And I uh, really enjoyed this. I've been following the Financial Therapy Association and a few financial therapists here and there. Um, I would encourage you to have a look at the training that uh, Nate offers. He mentions it in the episode. Uh, This episode will be good for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions. Uh, No accident and sickness credits here. Uh, one life insurance credit in Alberta, and a financial planning credit through FP Canada, an IAS credit through Advocus, and a professional development credit through IROC. The color for today's episode is yellow. The color for today's episode is yellow. So I've got a few other uh, financial therapists that I'm going to reach out to or people who are involved in the Financial Therapy Association. I liked this episode because it gave us a good, uh, let's say, intro to the practice of financial therapy. And if you have other questions, I'd love to hear them. I've been thinking about this, that I haven't done a great job of uh, soliciting questions from the community, as it were. And we're going to be taking some steps in uh, season four, which will start at the beginning of September to uh, create a little bit more community around the uh, podcast here. So I look forward to that. But in the meantime, if you have questions that uh, you think I should have asked uh, Nate or questions for or about financial therapists in general, fire them over to me at uh, Jason.Watt at BusinessCareerCollege.com and I can uh, book the appropriate guest to go through those questions. Okay, let's hear what Nate has to say about the practice of financial therapy. I'm joined today by uh, Nate Assel. Nate is actually our first American guest to be on the podcast and also our first therapist on the podcast. You know that I love to have folks from other uh, specializations and hopefully help everybody to understand a little bit of what financial therapy is. So I'm hoping you can start us off, Nate, just with a little look at what a financial therapy engagement would look like.
0: Yeah, so it. Uh, the greatest answer that therapists can give is it depends. Um, But most financial therapy engagements um, look like looking at their money beliefs, emotions, and behaviors. So that's kind of the broader goal of what financial therapy is looking to do is helping people change how they behave with money, but also change how they feel about it and how they think about it. And it's a much more in-depth process. And I think most financial planning is, you know, just like a financial planner, a financial therapist would sit down with the client talking about certain goals, um, but also talking about maybe histories with money, talking about emotional barriers to making certain financial decisions. For example, if a couple comes in, they're having financial conflicts or they have a retirement goal that they're trying to meet, but they're, you know, not saving what they need to, a financial therapist might look at, okay, so when you are making those purchases and, you know, or maybe you don't realize that you're you know, spending away those savings that you need, like what's going on emotionally for you? What, um, what are the triggers that would get you off track? You know, and like I said, financial therapists can be psychotherapists, they can be financial planners who are just using those skills. Um, So I think it would just depend on what the end goal is. But I think for most financial planners, that could be an example of what
1: they could expect. So if I'm a financial planner who's done no training in financial therapy, you know it's very common. I talk to tons of financial planners or financial advisors. It's very normal to people to hear people say, "Well, I do a little bit of marriage counseling and a little bit of therapy and a little bit of psych like that kind of thing. How does the financial planner know, you know it would be very normal in that client engagement to have a discussion about money beliefs and you know ask a question like, what's your first memory of money, right? And kind of get to a money story. How does the financial planner know when they're in over their head? How does the financial planner know that they should be dealing with somebody like yourself?
0: So this is something I trust most financial planners to stick within their scope of practice. Some examples is if the financial planner notices their own emotions coming up, if a client is, starts to cry in your office and, you know, because of whatever reason and you're going, ah, don't cry, oh, and I'm really uncomfortable, that actually might be a chance for you, the planner, to check out what's going on inside of you. But also, um, you know, if if a client is, you know, crying, for example, um, or having conflict with their family or partner in your office, it's it's just really important that you are staying within your lane um, for lots of different reasons, and one of them is you just don't want to do any harm. When one of the best things that I think planners can do with their clients is acknowledge um, that you're talking about numbers, but you're also talking about much deeper things. Um, people are laying their hopes and dreams and values and shames at your feet. <laughs> When they bring you a money, a money story. And so I think it's crucial that planners one get more comfortable, but also know, okay, this is something that would probably be better handled with a, with a therapist or somebody that can, that has those skill sets. So there there's your non-answer for you, I guess.
1: <laughs> well, I was expecting a lot of gray area there. I wasn't expecting a, like if a then b type of answer, right? It's just like right. financial planning. The answer is pretty much always it depends. So <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess then is it primarily an inward look for the for the planner to decide when to send the client off? Or, you know, should you be thinking about like, okay, so this client is very emotional, but I'm, I'm comfortable with it, or I'm used to it, you know, is there, is there a point where pretty much no matter what that person should end up with a therapist?
0: Yeah. So if it's, if it's a money matter that they're coming to with, I think a financial planner could probably handle it. But if they start asking, what should I do with my partner? Or what should I do with my family member? Or what should I do about my depression related to money? Then I would suggest referring out. I do think that this is a improvement area that most financial planners could benefit from is how do I, you know, attune with and empathize with my clients and validate their emotions and their feelings. And then um, how can I suggest therapy in a safe way without saying, I don't know how to handle this. I'm going to just throw this over to a therapist because what you want your clients to do is to trust you. Not just trust your competency with numbers, but trust you as a human being. And that does require some therapeutic skills, but your job isn't to create change in their family life per se, or, you know, in their relationships, that might be something that you let someone who has that skill set do.
1: Yeah, a side effect of good financial planning should be better relationships, better home life, all that good stuff, right? But yeah, I get that. That shouldn't be your... primary focus do you have advice then about you know like I can't say to my client like you're way too messed up for me to help you right so do you have advice about how to with say empathy or I don't even know what the right uh, word to use here is but about how to get that person to go see a, a therapist where you know you don't betray trust they don't feel judged that type of thing
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's actually something I, I go over in my my training course for um that I offer. But just you know, the simple version is you want to validate where they're coming from, and specifically you want to normalize is the word we use. But so, an example, you know, script you might say is, "I I see that you're." this is something that's really difficult for you to talk about. That's totally normal. I see a lot of my clients that really, really struggle with this. And one thing that I've seen maybe in my own life or in my clients' lives is sometimes it's nice just to have an extra resource, an extra person that can help you work through some of these big feelings. Um, And I actually have some, um, professionals in my network, some therapists that work with people when they're having these feelings of X, Y, or Z, whatever you see in front of you. So you're, you're just normalizing saying, yeah, this, of course you're feeling overwhelmed. Of course you're feeling upset. This is a really big and scary thing. Um, And I actually have some people that I think would be a really good resource for you. Something along those lines, I think can go a really long way in helping them helping the client not feel judged, not feel shame. And I I think this needs to happen in more than just our sessions with our clients, because I think mental health needs to be talked about in a much bigger scale. But um, that's just kind of example, normalize
1: their feeling, validate it, and then offer resources. Perfect. So you mentioned your training course here. Um, This is relational money. Can you give us maybe a little background on yourself then and what uh, relational money is as well? Sure. So um, I, I have a master's degree in couples and family
0: therapy. So my, my home, home is in the therapy side of this. But I also am a board member for the Financial Therapy Association. And I created a, a four-week course um, for financial planners to gain some of these therapeutic skills. Um, some of them might be, you know, how do I empathize with a client? How do I validate? What do I, What can I actually say? and giving kind of some example scripts and example language you might use. Um, I also cover things like, how do I make a referral to a therapist? How do I, what does trauma-informed financial planning look like? Um, And so we cover some brain science sorts of things. um, And then just looking at different theoretical approaches to therapy and then taking some of those interventions and say, okay, we know this works in a therapeutic context. We know how people change. Now, how would I apply that in uh, as a financial planner? Because I, I don't think that um, I'm not teaching any skills that you know you're you need to have a license for, and I'm just teaching things that I think every human could benefit from with a little bit of you know I, education on what's happening, but then also like you know, this these are skills that hopefully use in your sessions, but honestly, I would love it. Even if you just use it in your own
1: relationships and how do I empathize and validate with my partners? So, yeah. So you say a four week program, Nate, is that like four weeks, uh, like full time, four weeks, an hour a day? What's the uh, sort of commitment there?
0: Yeah. So it's um, two hours uh, every week. So it's a total of eight hours. Um, I typically do them on like a Thursday evening or a Saturday um, just cause people tend to be more free, but yeah, they're, are two hour sessions, one hour approximately is educational material. Um, and then the second hour tends to be more one-on-one coaching. Um, so I might split you up into small groups and have you practice these skills and I'll go from group to group and, um, you know, maybe give some feedback here or there. I, I want you to leave with skills. I want you to feel like, okay, I can take this skill that I learned today and apply it in my session tomorrow. And um, so I think that's, you know, that's something I value that I think um, hopefully translates well into the room that it's not just learning education. I, I want you to leave knowing, okay, I've done this once or
1: twice and I've had someone watch me that knows how to do it. Would your typical client there be like an RIA that has you know 20 people that it wants to put through or do you kind of pluck individuals and fill them in as you have a, a cohort ready to go?
0: Yeah, um, I, I like small groups. And the reason is I like it to be more intimate because um, a firm belief I have is if you're asking people to make financial changes and looking at their emotions and thoughts and behaviors, you have to be willing to do that yourself that congruency that you have has a big power when you're giving people advice and this is something we know from research as well so i prefer those small groups but i have done some trainings with you know an RIA with
1: 20 people if they want a training i'm you know happy to do that i wasn't trying to preposition it at 20 people i was more thinking <laughs> yeah. the type of uh, the type of client but yeah that's that's helpful thanks um, and i assume all done by zoom or yep yeah it's all online yeah, oh, perfect. So, just going back to your practice today, I know you're sort of working not in a, a specific financial therapy role today, right? You're doing uh, primarily couples and and uh, individual therapy. I Have that right?
0: Yeah. So, I, I my full time day job, I guess, is as a therapist in a community mental health center. So, in that, that gets all walks of life. You know, I will have I will have a couple come in. Uh, who have been married for 30 years, and they're having challenges. I'll have a college-age student come in. The next hour, I'll have a five-year-old the next hour, and I'm working on co-parenting. And then the next hour after that, I have someone with, you know, maybe schizophrenia. Um, So it's all types of situations coming in through my door. But my my goal is always have a lens of how does money impact their, their
1: symptoms, their depression, their anxiety, their whatever it is. And I know I'm going to get some of the, it depends answer here, but do you find, would it be like half of those engagements where you have some sort of money discussion, or is it something that is pretty much always, it shows up at some point?
0: I would say pretty much always um, what, how it typically comes up is um, they'll tell me about, you know, their stress or whatever is bringing them in. And I'll ask, okay, tell me how your parents affect this situation now? Well, they're the ones that started it, you know, whatever it is. And then I'll ask, okay, so how does your current financial situation play into this? And that's typically what I look like. I'm looking for what
1: are the different factors influencing how they're experiencing the problem. Now, you and I first met, I don't know if you remember this or not, but at uh, CFP Board Academic Research Colloquium, which is one of my very favorite conferences. Everybody should get to this thing at least once. Um, and you're at K-State, which does a ton of uh, of work there. Just great financial planning research comes out of there. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the financial planner then and the financial therapist and maybe a little bit of history here and if you could look down the road a little bit too, maybe? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I do remember. <laughs> that was great. Um, so financial therapy as a field really at least an organized financial therapy field really originated around 2008 after the the great recession, because a lot of financial planners obviously um, were experiencing a lot of distress at that time. um, And they were realizing, Oh my gosh, this is having huge impacts on mental health. And also a lot of therapists were saying, Oh my gosh, so many people are talking about their money. Then, you know more than normal, and so they basically a small group got together. And says maybe this is something we should study and, and look into more, um, and that's kind of where the financial therapy association was born. Um, from there, it's you know it's grown over the last thirteen years or so, um, and now we have a certified financial therapist designation. We have a journal of financial therapy, which is a, a free academic resource. Uh, You don't have to be tied to a university. You can just Google Journal of Financial Therapy and you got 10 years of research that you can read on a variety of different topics. Um, And I'm really excited for where I can go. My my hope is um, that every financial planner has basic skills in, uh, we can call them therapeutic skills, but I'm just going to say basic skills in being a human. And then where financial planners feel more comfortable referring to therapists. And I also hope that therapists get much more training in how do I handle financial situations in the therapy room? Because both fields are under-trained in their opposite. Like financial planners really don't get a ton of training in counseling or a therapeutic theory or anything. And therapists get almost no training in money topics. And that's a really unfortunate thing. Um, because I think it, it could change a lot of lives if we talked a little bit more to each other.
1: I think I've heard uh, Brad Klontz say this and Moira Summers and Christy Archuleta all say the same thing, that in their therapy training, they talked about money. It was by accident. Mm-hmm. Is that something that is changing now? Do you get to see this in therapy programs today at, at uh post-secondaries? Not
0: yet. Um, there is, it is still unfortunately very, very small numbers. And most, so for example, the, the program I went to Kansas State, which is a hub for financial therapy, right? I had an entire course designated to sex therapy because sex, you know, affects a lot of you know, how couples relate with each other and couples that have sex problems, right? It's, it's an important thing to talk about. And I got zero classes on money. And any discussions I had with money was because I brought it up because I'm passionate about it. And, and there's actually research in the Journal of Financial Therapy that looks at different post-secondary education programs and counseling, zero. There's, there's nothing as far as formal classes. I believe the University of Georgia has its first but that was this last year, 2020. So it's still very, very new. So but you know, over the next 20 years, I'm very excited to see where it'll go.
1: And then do you have a feel for what happens on the financial planning side? Again, you know, K State is doing so much work in that area. Would a an undergrad financial planning student at K State get much exposure to therapy?
0: Yeah. Uh that is the one thing I do think is happening happening well is yes. Uh, I think many programs are now, start, now starting to have at least one course in financial counseling, which is different than financial therapy, but that's okay. As long as it's getting them into the, oh, this is a people profession, um, that, that's a really big start. Um, I would say that in my experience, when I talk to different financial planners, when they come from business um, schools if this if the courses in financial planning are, are housed in the school of Business they tend to get less um, exposure to different you know social science perspectives on financial planning so my hope is that financial planning will be seen more as a helping profession than a business profession because um, I And, you know, we can talk about that all day long, but I I do think that financial planning is primarily helping uh, just the same way that nursing or teaching or, uh, you know, therapy is. We need
1: at least a background in how do people work socially, you know? I agree with this. You can know the, like in Canada, the Income Tax Act, you can know all the technical ins and outs. I can know what goes into insurance contract language or so forth. But if I can't communicate those ideas in a way that that actually gets somebody to to move from where they are now to where they want to be all that technical stuff is uh, is useless and yeah it's uh, and just you know in Canada we don't uh, most of our financial planners wouldn't come out of post-secondary programs mostly they would obtain their financial planning uh certification sort of in practice afterwards so a little different that way but it's uh, it's still, I find it's interesting and I, I know it's the same in the United States where still that education for financial planners is largely based on the, I think they call it body of knowledge, the CFP board in the United States. We have a body of knowledge here as well. So yeah. Now you talked about financial counseling here. So is it worth it to talk about a, a breakdown and or overlap with financial coaching, financial counseling, financial therapy, financial planning? Or is it that they're too intermingled to to be able to create a useful breakdown?
0: I would say 80% is co-meagled between these things. Um, You know, every field, at least in the fields of psychotherapy, you have psychologists, you have psychiatrists, you have um, marriage and family therapists, you have social workers, professional counselors. And each one has their own focus and training um, but a lot of the skills do overlap I think um, financial counseling the short version financial counseling looks a lot more at day-to-day behaviors um, you know very more short-term focus I would say um, financial coaches often play a more of an accountability partner than I think other professions do um, and might do yeah more more like motivational coaching therapists I think tend to go a little bit deeper as far as you know histories um histories with money emotions thoughts and then financial planners um you know tend to be more overall goal maybe more technical focus different policies plans things
1: that need to happen but there's still a lot of skills that are shared for sure and thinking about uh, your engagements with clients then, first off, would people come to see you because they they want to or because they have to? Where does that line sort of draw on?
0: Yeah, most, uh, most financial therapy, because it's so new, it's not like this established thing where a court would order someone to go to financial therapy. Courts do order people to go to psychotherapy all the time. Um, But yeah, people would come because they want to, or perhaps from a referral from a financial planner or financial professional.
1: And are your engagements, do you see it as more of an acute type of problem where it might be like two or three meetings and done, or are these multi-year interventions where, or interventions, not the right word to use then, right? But these multi-year processes where you're you're really developing like a relationship and you're going to have that relationship, you know, for forever and ever.
0: Right. Um, I would say, uh, of course it depends, um, but I think typically it's more acute. Um, uh, the average session in for psychotherapy is about anywhere from eight to 12 weeks. Um, so insurance will reimburse you up to 12 weeks. And I, I know that's, that is much too broad to apply to every insurance and that obviously every country. But um, I do think it, it's definitely a relational, it's a relationship building process. Um, but one of the, I guess, ethical principles we have in psychotherapy is if you're not doing good, then you need to stop working um, with the client. Um, it's more than just don't do harm. It's, this has to be actively beneficial because we, you know, as, as weird as this sounds, my end job, my end goal is for you to fire me. <laughs> um, I don't want you to need to be in therapy forever if we can help it. Um, If you can use the skills, if we can process the things that need to be processed, then I would love for you to, you know, do some things on
1: your own. That'd be great. That makes sense. And I, that sounds to me more like a sort of intervention as opposed to, you know, relationship if you're drawing a spectrum. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um now, what about you talked about potentially getting referrals from financial planners? Do you have a, a sort of network of financial planners uh, with whom you maintain relationships?
0: Yeah, I I try to. Um, so I, you know, I have my own preferences on on what the people I would refer to have as far as qualifications. Um I, I do prefer that, you know, my planners operate on a fee-only uh, basis. And it's just, it's just my own personal ethical um, things that I wrestle with. And um, that is something for, at least on the, um, on the, financial, from the financial Therapy Association, um, financial, certified financial therapists are required to have fee-only practices rather than based on sales or commission, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, so I, I try and connect with people on LinkedIn as well. But I, I would say that I, I look for planners with enough human skills that I feel comfortable sending my clients to them.
1: And you just mentioned again, you've mentioned a couple of times now that uh, sort of a financial therapist designation. Can you talk about that a little bit and maybe also the role or what the Financial Therapy Association does? Yeah, sure. So uh, the... Financial Therapy
0: Association is a organization for both financial planners and therapists. Um, So, and of course, you know, coaches
1: and counselors
0: and all the things in between.
1: Educators. I've seen a few educators there. So,
0: And we, you know, we do a lot of different things. One of them is, you know, providing ethical standards. Um, Another one is providing the certified financial therapist designation. And what that looks like is you have to have a bachelor's degree. Uh, You need 500 hours of direct client experience. Um, There is education that you can take through the Financial Therapy Association, and then you take the exam, a national exam, or I guess an international exam. And um, once you do all of those things, you can now, you know, title yourself as a certified financial therapist professional. So, if you're a financial planner taking the CFT, um, you, that doesn't make you a therapist, right? That doesn't mean okay, now I can start diagnosing people. Um, but it means that you have some basic skills in financial therapy as a as a field. Um, I I love the FTA. I love the Financial Therapy Association. There's you know, there's webinars, there's, um, we have an annual conference, there's just a lot of really good like minded people that see this as a helping profession. And another great thing is there's so much research and so much training out there. that I think um, it's, it's just a great resource, I think, for financial planners to look into.
1: I've been a member now for a couple of years, and I've found it very much worthwhile. It's a it's an inexpensive membership and the value you get out of it is uh, top notch. So yeah, I, uh, I'm a big fan. I I've recommended it to quite a few people, some of whom have joined. So yes, (laughs) great. So you're, you're building a little tree, I guess that way, Nate, if you want to look at it like that, because (laughs) I joined it at your uh, urging initially. Um, Now you had mentioned earlier that you, you had questions or thoughts about money when you came into therapy. Can you chat a little bit about that what what was your kind of background with money that made this a particular interest to you
0: yeah so you know I'll try I'll try and give a short version of the story but I initially I just knew that I wanted to be a therapist a lot of that came from uh, my experiences growing up my parents didn't have you know the best relationship and they, they did have a lot of conflict and I saw what impact that had on me and the impact it had on them and so I initially, I just wanted to be a therapist, and I was happy with that. Um, and then I, I went to K-State because it was a, a really good program for for couples and family therapy. And I just fell into it by accident, honestly. People were talking about financial therapy here. I, I met some of the professors and the research. I was like, man, this is really cool. And then as I was going through my program, I realized how much of my my story has been impacted by money. The things that my parents thought about all the time was money and, and money related. Um, and then I started to look at my personal financial behaviors. Um, I, you know, I don't know if your listeners know about money scripts, but it's just an example of a belief you have about money. I had a, a money avoidance script that came from watching my parents have that financial conflict Um, And then when I got married and I was, uh, my wife is great and was saying, okay, let's look at our budget. Let's be, you know, intentional here. Uh, I hated it. I was, I just, and I didn't always know why either. It's like, I know how to do this. I just don't know why I'm having this response within myself. And then it started to click. Like, Oh, money is this huge emotional, you know, experience I'm constantly dealing with. And so I, I did my, you know, some of my own work, we call it self of the financial therapist work, looking at my own life and, um, and it was beautiful. And I, I think that was the moment I realized like, this is something the world needs. Um, the world needs this, this field. Cause I think all of us to some degree have a story around money and it's a belief system and it impacts every decision that we make. It, Impacts every relationship we have, and the same thing works on the opposite. Our every relationship we have, every decision we make affects how we feel and think about money as well. So it's it's a cyclical pattern. We we just need to be more aware of it.
1: Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> no, that's a good answer. And uh, yeah, money script is something that is now in our body of knowledge in Canada since uh, 2020, 2019. I can't remember now, but it's a relatively new addition. And I love it. I think it's a great, uh, great chunk to add in there. It just it gives you a framework for these conversations. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so now we've talked a little bit about the financial planner, and you said sort of stay in your lane kind of thing, right? And and recognizing what that lane might look like. What about the financial therapist who gets questions that that push into financial planning? How do you address that.
0: Yeah. I, I try and hold myself to the same standard where um, I'm, I'm comfortable talking about a budget, you know, I'm comfortable talking about what it looks, how the basics of credit and um, you know, how to get a higher score and all those kinds of things. But if they're asking me, okay, what about this policy versus this one? Um, I will definitely refer them to a financial planner. Now, it's, it's important to know that although I am, you know, a certified financial therapy professional, my background's in therapy. That's my home. A, you can also be a certified financial therapy professional and have financial planning as your home. So they might feel more comfortable having some emotional conversations, but then if their client starts talking about domestic violence, this happened, I would hope that they also refer to a therapist. So yeah, again, gray lines here me personally, I feel like I know enough financial planning stuff to be dangerous. um, And that's why I try and um, I try and refer out if it's going to be something that's more technical in nature rather than emotional.
1: It it makes sense. And I I know if you trace back sort of the early days of financial planning in the United States as a profession, that was sort of a fork in the road that had to be uh, figured out early, right? Mm -hmm. So um, now, what do you wish that financial planners knew about financial therapy?
0: One thing I hear quite a bit is the word therapy is scary um, because, uh, you know, a lot of professionals are, are afraid of of stepping out of their lane. And I think that keeps them away from listening to things like financial therapy, like, oh, that's a separate thing that I don't need to know. Um, I think financial therapy is it's something that most financial planners could practice. Um, Financial therapy just means that we're looking at the financial decision making process more therapeutically, where it's my goal. Isn't just your bottom line. Uh, My goal is to make you happy and healthy and better family relationships. You know, like um, I, I think that mindset shift does wonders for how, planners can get more engaged with their work. It's more than just, um, numbers on a page and presenting it to a client. And, and there you go, check, I did my job. Um, this is an emotional process for most people, um, to, to engage with a financial planner, to talk about not just their retirement, um, but to talk about money beliefs, to talk about, um, what it means, their feelings of failure. Um, Okay. Well, let's talk about end of life planning. Okay. They're facing their mortality. Like that is a huge, huge discussion. And it's, I think financial planners as an, as a whole can do so much more good for their clients. If they're willing to take a couple of steps towards financial therapy, or at least a couple more steps into the social, human nature of what we do. And I I think, honestly,
1: some great things can come out of that. I would agree with that. And I, you know, that idea of end of life questions, like that's such a big issue to deal with. And it's not something that I think necessarily we think about, you know, when you're asking clients these questions about like estate planning, insurance needs and so forth. And I just sometimes think, we don't consider what's going on in somebody's head when you're asking them that question, right? About what a, what a sort of foreign concept it is to contemplate those things. Right. I think uh, is it terror theory is that what I'm thinking of here? The, uh, the aversion to talking about those things. Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, sure I, can't, I can't remember. I just came across this for the first time. So, yeah. Um. All right. Well, that's really wonderful, Nate. I appreciate your time, your wisdom, giving us an, some exposure to something that I think most financial advisors and financial planners in Canada won't have heard much about previously. And something I hope uh, hope we can get people more used to the idea of both the financial advisors and then just like you were just saying their clients as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Nate. Okay. As we heard uh, Nathan talk about in the interview, this practice of financial therapy is relatively new. And this is where it gets a little bit challenging, I think, for the financial planner to figure out where the, the line is drawn or the sort of blurry line. And we heard Nathan talk about that with the it depends quote, the, uh, the, the must in there, the it depends, uh, where he said there is some blurring of the lines between financial planning. Uh, financial counseling, financial therapy, financial coaching, that these things don't necessarily have a clear delineation. And I agree with that. I think that that's true, that there's not a really good indicator of which is which. And in fact, anybody who's listening to this, who's gone through the core curriculum on route to CFP certification with me in the last few years, will have gone through an exercise where for 10 different Uh, case studies, or at least 10 different people in a series of case studies, you're expected to identify whether the client is best served by financial planning, financial coaching, or financial therapy. And in that particular assignment, there's a little bit of leeway. So there are several of the clients in that uh, set of case studies where, depending on how the answer is framed, I will accept uh, multiple answers. So there might be Uh, One set of answers that uh, points to financial planning is needed for this client, and it really depends on how you interpret information provided in the case study, and you might interpret the information differently, and a different student for the same client might say, no, it's financial therapy. And I would expect this would happen in real life as well, in practice. I think that what what is appropriate here in practice is that you develop. A method of determining this, where you say, "What's the the cutoff here? What's the point where I am going to be outside of uh, my comfort zone and maybe outside of what I really should be doing?" And I hear this all the time, and I'm not saying this is wrong. Where a financial planner sits down with, let's say, a couple, and it's maybe the first time, and he talked about this in the interview a little bit about how couples. He talked about this in his own situation about how couples don't necessarily uh, get on the same page about money and maybe the financial planner uh, brings something up here and it causes some degree of conflict between the couple or their perceptions about the financial planner's question, creates some sort of conflict and you get things a little bit heated in your office. And I'm sure that some of you listening to this have had that exact experience and I'm sure that everybody listening to this as had a couple meet with them in the office and things seemed fine and then the couple left and maybe got into it a little bit in the car on the ride home the question then is how far do you want to go with that you're not presumably i don't think anybody listening to this is qualified as a marriage and family therapist or anything in that sort of ballpark and I don't think that we want to be delivering advice that is uh, going to either help a couple to keep their relationship together or where following that advice uh, would be the linchpin of keeping that relationship together. So it's where you say, well, what is the consequence of the advice I'm delivering? And remember, the advice we're delivering here is intended to help people achieve their financial goals. Now, of course, we want people to achieve their financial goals in ways that optimizes for happiness and satisfaction and ideally that the relationship stays together. But we should recognize what our role as financial planners is. So maybe you use that as a sort of framework where you say, well, how far do I want to go with having conversations about, say, a healthy relationship? And I think that there is some merit here to saying, You know, couple, if you have open conversations about money, that's great. That's going to help your relationship. That's going to help you to achieve your financial goals. At the same time, recognizing the limitations there. So I think that it's worth it to sit down, put pen to paper, and maybe come up with a few different circumstances where you say, no, that's it. I'm going to now refer this client to a therapist. And Nate said, possibly it's when you've got that client uh, sitting across from you crying. So you have to pull out the box of tissues. And again, there can be good reasons for that. And it might not just be that the first time somebody cries that you send them to therapy. But really think about that. If you're sitting across from that client and you know that they're going to burst out in tears, you know they're going to be very emotional, say well am i capable of dealing with that am i the best person to deal with that and maybe use that as part of a let's say decision matrix by which you might send that client for uh, therapy so i think it's worth thinking about the degree of conflict the degree of emotional upset that you're able to deal with in your office now the next step from here is how do you comfortably have that conversation? How do you present this idea to the client that that person is doing something that's beyond your scope? And this is where it's a classic problem with any sort of behavioral finance question where I can't say, and I kind of joked about it in the interview here, "Uh, client, you're too screwed up for me to help you. Well, that's not helpful. That's not going to frame the client or frame the conversation in a way that's going to encourage any sort of positive outcome. I think, though, it's worth practicing, worth having a script hammered out where you can say to the client, look, I appreciate that we're trying to come to a solution here. I'm just not sure that I have the tools to help with the situation you're in. And by doing this, you're not really putting the the blame or the weight on the client. Instead, you're saying, look, I have this skill set and really it's on me that I can't help you. And I think there's some version of that that's going to be practical in these situations where you have a client or a couple who is sitting across from you where it's just not viable for you to deliver the advice or the kind of help that they need. Accepting then that you might have to send a client to a therapist from time to time. And this is where I find very few financial planners are well prepared for this because I assume that people listening to this call would have relationships with uh, estate lawyers and tax accountants and other financial professionals, and you would be able to send your clients to those people for help. But I don't run into that many financial planners who have relationships with therapists, and honestly, there are not very many financial therapists uh, practicing in Canada, so. This is going to be a little bit uh, sticky. You might look at, uh, for example, Moira Summers, whom I've spoken about previously. Um, She's in Canada. There are some members of the Financial Therapy Association. So the Financial Therapy Association, uh, which Nathan talked about in here, does maintain a public directory. And you might find somebody in the Financial Therapy Association directory who can help you out. There's a board member at FTA who is a financial planner practicing in Canada. Or it might just be that you develop a relationship with some local therapists and you have them as sort of back, back pocket references. You say, you know, if I ever have a client who needs help, can I send them to you? And that therapist might ask a little bit more about what kind of help. This is where potentially you say, well, I... I know that there's not that many folks out there qualified to do this, but have a look at Financial Therapy Association, have a look at the works of uh, Brad Klontz, for example, and see if we can develop a sort of symbiotic relationship where you can help out my clients who have financial therapy needs. Another area that we touched on in the interview is the history and development of the practice of financial therapy. And I want to give specific mention here to a book. I have mentioned this book before. Uh, It's the excellent book, Facilitating Financial Health, Tools for Financial Planners, Coaches and Therapists, and written by Brad Klontz, Rick Kaler and Ted Klontz. This is really the, the framework by which a lot of financial therapy and financial coaching is delivered. And. It's in this book and then some related works. There's an article in the Journal of Financial Planning that's uh, closely tied into this. But this is where we see uh, Professor Klontz, Brad Klontz, uh, deal with the question of helping to create a language or a framework around how people identify with money. Now, this gets a little bit complicated. I am by no means a medical professional and certainly not a mental health professional. So uh, take what I say here with a grain of salt. I'm going to paraphrase some of what shows up in facilitating financial health. But uh, basically, we have for uh, psychiatric disorders, we have a book called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And this is the book that if a therapist, a professional psychiatrist or a psychotherapist is diagnosed a condition, they would open up that DSM. And they would find the indications in there, that is, the the attributes that somebody exhibits, and they would match that up to that condition. Well, as we heard Nathan talk about in the interview, the practice of therapy hasn't really acknowledged, let's say, financial issues. He said it's just not something that's covered, even in his education, which was at a school that's well known for uh, dealing heavily in behavioral finance. That he didn't get that exposure in his uh, therapy classes. And it's really in response to that that uh, Professor Klontz came up with this set of what's called money scripts, where he said, look, these are not in the DSM and they're not intended to be. They're kind of a midway point where we can say, here's how you interact with money, and we can use some of the language that people use or some of the behaviors that people exhibit to uh, identify their money script that is how do you deal with money and uh, professor klontz actually has a fantastic tool on his website it's in today's show notes you can google uh, brad Klantz money scripts there's a free tool there we go through 53 questions And uh, no obligation afterwards. I've done this myself a couple of times. You don't get any uh, follow on emails except the one that has your money scripts in it. And basically uh, takes these uh, money scripts and gives you a score. Says, how much do these affect you? So everybody has these money scripts. Everybody has these ways of dealing with money. uh, These things that frame how we perceive money or how we relate to money. It's a question of how strong or how dominant, or in some cases, how weak are these money scripts for each individual. And I know a lot of financial planners have adopted something like this in their practice. A few big firms have adopted something like this really at an institutional level where every client gets a version of this. So in the book, Facilitating Financial Health, uh, Professor Klontz identifies four different categories of money scripts and there is some overlap between these and then within these money scripts there are potential uh further stories that we tell ourselves. And we heard in fact Nathan use one of these terms in his uh conversation. That's money avoidance. So money avoidance is the idea that to some extent money is bad and it creates negative emotions, negative feelings, and often links up to a sort of rich people. Are greedy, type of perspective. And so that's money avoidance. And then we see money worship, and money worship is where we place a disproportionate value on money. We say, if I just had more money, everything would be better. Uh, money status is linked to money worship to some extent. So money status is where you might have a sort of keeping up with the Joneses problem, uh, somebody who feels like the car they drive is how people are going to judge them. That's uh, money status and then money vigilance. So money vigilance uh, links a little bit to money avoidance. This is where we really don't get involved in any kind of discussions or decisions about money. Uh, This would be somebody who takes the perspective that they should really use Everything they can to protect themselves from having to deal with money issues. This person might be a very aggressive saver, for example. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything else positive associated with that aggressive savings behavior. It might be that they're just saving so that they can avoid having any other sort of uh, money conversations. So that that uh, money vigilance is really a shield against let's say, the challenges that they perceive they might have if they had to really confront whatever there is on the, on the money side for them. I'm going to just reference another uh, podcast here. I've mentioned this podcast once before. It's Sean Maslick, who is a financial planner based here in Edmonton, hosts a podcast called The Most Hated F Word. He's really had the who's who of behavioral finance on the show, including actually Brad Klontz, whom I mentioned as the, uh, sort of perpetrator of these money scripts and if you listen to sean's show and he's about 60 or so episodes deep now he goes through this quite a bit he often will ask his guests many of whom have a direct connection to financial therapy or financial coaching or financial counseling he often asks them what their money scripts are has a money script conversation with them it's quite useful. In terms of thinking about how people interact with their money. And it's the kind of thing I find once financial planners start to adopt in their practice, they often change how they interact with their clients. Digging further into Professor Klantz's work, then, we see that in the same book, Facilitating Financial Health, he identifies some of the money disorders that can be problematic here and specifically talks about shame. For example. So, this is people who, when the concept of money comes up, that they will experience shame. And there's potentially, again, an evolutionary reason for this that money is actually a relatively new concept in human history. So, this is where we aren't necessarily hardwired in our brains to deal with this concept of money, this thing that has literal value. And then we have this. uh, let's say, problem where we confuse the value of money with our own self-worth. Another money disorder, and this is, ties into something that we had talked about already, is the idea of relationship difficulties. To what extent does money contribute to relationship difficulties? Does one person in the relationship use money as a, as a lever over the other person in the relationship? When you have a couple with kids, does one of them use money to uh, somehow create a negative impression of the other partner with the kids? This can be done subconsciously sometimes. The next one, when I did my money scripts inventory, this is where, uh, not surprisingly at all to me, I scored the highest. This is workaholism. And uh, workaholism uh, can certainly have a connection back to our money scripts. The next disorder that uh, Professor Klontz identifies as compulsive buying disorder and this is where we're using really buying as a replacement for dealing with some other issue so you have money and or even sometimes you don't have money you have a credit card and you go shopping you buy something it helps you to not have to identify what is really problematic here, or not even to think about the fact that there might be something else that is problematic. And then we get into a couple of disorders that are more traditionally identified, one being gambling disorder. And I do find there's a little bit of an interesting connotation with gambling disorder. I'm sure that we all, when we think of gambling disorder, have the impression of somebody who is sitting at a slot machine feeding Uh, money into the slot machine relentlessly and ignores all that's going on around them when they're doing that but that's not the only kind of gambling that we might think about and this is where the financial planner might see behaviors that would be indicative of gambling disorder without necessarily involving the casino and the slot machine for example you might have somebody who has no emergency fund and has no sort of reserves in the bank and as soon as they have money that shows up they will spend that or allocate that somewhere and they are always just living on the cusp this is potentially indicative of a gambling disorder because this person might get a little bit of a a thrill from just living on that knife edge So it's not the kind of gambling that we would maybe traditionally think about, but it still might be indicative of that. And this is where, again, we have to be careful how far we go in our practice as financial planners. It can be useful to have the client do something like the client's money scripts inventory. And potentially that gives them some self-awareness. You're not qualified to, to treat that. And it can be difficult to send somebody for therapy uh, in a case like that. So we want to maybe help that client gain some self-awareness. And again, that's where I, I like that idea of having them do that Money Scripts inventory. And the next one that we see is hoarding disorder. This is also one that has potential financial implications. And again, the connotation we might have in our head maybe. Uh, My spouse used to make me watch episodes of hoarders, where people, of course, had all kinds of stuff piled up in their houses, rendering them unlivable and fire hazards and so forth. And I think we often think about hoarding disorder that way, but hoarding disorder can relate to financial behaviors. And this would be uh, somebody who feels like they can never let go of the money they've accumulated. And we have lots of stories like this people who have a lot of money who would be let's say, rich from most definitions, but aren't willing to part with any of that money. That can be a hoarding disorder issue. And then the uh, final disorder identified here by Professor Klontz is the financial dependence. And this is where you're really unable to cut the strings. You're really unable to free yourself up from dependence from somebody else. I actually heard a great... A tool for this recently. I had uh, the pleasure of uh, co teaching a class with Professor Tanya Staples. She's at Conestoga College, and she introduced this idea of parents building a launch fund for their children. The idea that you would have some money set aside to help the kids to cut the purse strings and that that money would be a finite resource rather than the parents continually having the taps turned on to help those kids uh, achieve that independence. The number for today's episode is six. The number for today's episode is six. Okay, I hope you learned as much as I did from that episode. I've been long interested in this field of financial therapy. Uh, such that I've been a member of the Financial Therapy Association for a couple of years now. And I've learned a lot from attending their meetings and reading their journal. I would really urge you to have a look at this. And as we mentioned previously, it's something that in Canada we just don't have that much of yet. I think there's a real need for this. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to... BCCquiz.online. There's a short five question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. <music> I hope you'll join us again in two weeks when I'll be talking to Chad. We're going to be talking about the role of property and casualty insurance in the financial plan. Enjoy your continued studies. Thank you very much. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing, Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Pomerlope Paquet, Ji uh, Lu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.